Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Hilary Matfis, is the co-author of a fascinating new paper that appears in the current summer 2017 issue of the academic journal International Security. In it, Hilary Matfis and her co-author, Valerie Hudson, identify a link between bride prices and violent conflict. Bride price, sometimes more commonly known as dowry payments, is essentially, as Hillary explains, wealth that would-be grooms must transfer to the family of his would-be wife. In this way, bride price acts as a regressive flat tax that poorer, younger men must pay to wealthier, older men. And through case studies, which he discusses in this conversation, the paper demonstrates how fluctuations in bride prices can lead to the outbreak of violent conflict. Hilary Memphis is a PhD student at Yale University and author of the book Women and the War on Boko Haram. And I should say that for anyone who has ever taken a international relations or international security class, you know, there is like volumes of research out there on what causes the outbreak of violent conflict, but never before has this linkage been identified. And if you are at all interested in learning more, definitely check out the paper. I found it totally fascinating, really one of the more interesting papers I have read in an academic journal in a long time. So enjoy this conversation with Hillary Matfis. Before we begin, I do want to encourage you to email me if you have anything on your mind, if there are suggestions of topics you want me to cover or people you want me to interview, just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the contact link and, and you'll send me an email. Look forward to hearing from you. All right, now here is my conversation with Hillary Matfis. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Bride uh, Prize, it's often kind of lumped together with dowry, um, and we make in the paper an analytical distinction between the two. Um, and so bride price, which this paper focuses on, is the payment uh, by a, a male suitor to the family of his intended bride. And that's uh, a prerequisite for the marriage to take place in a lot of the societies where it's practiced. And so as we were kind of formulating this paper, which happened uh, when I met Dr. Hudson Valerie at a, a conference and then in a few subsequent phone calls and then in uh, numerous email exchanges back and forth, we started unpacking and reading about all of the ways in which this very kind of overt transfer of wealth um, 
from a young man to typically an, an older man who represents the bride's family um, entrenches uh, the, the patriarchal systems that uh, there's a, when you look at the sort of Venn diagram of um, patriarchal patrilineal societies uh, and those that pa- practice bride price, there's kind of a, a significant overlap there. Uh, and so this paper came out of a lot of our discussions about how the practice of bride price uh, reinforces those patrilineal uh, systems of of uh, not only social control, but also kind of economic predominance. Um, and uh, I discussed it often with Valerie within the context of my own field work in northeastern Nigeria, looking at Boko Haram. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and what was interesting, and, and I didn't realize, is that something like 75% of the world's population um, you know, lives in societies in which bride price is practiced and in that, that kind of dowry paying is, is practice. It's not something that happens in the West or even in, in Latin America, but across much of the world, it's, it's uh, just incredibly common. Right. Right. Um, and so that really interesting factoid came from uh, Dr. Hudson's work with the, the women's stats project, which is a really great resource for anyone that's looking to do research, not just on women's rights and status globally, but also on, uh, gender dynamics more broadly and how they play into issues of conflict and resilience and economic development. Um, and I'm sure in the show notes, you can link to that or, or kind of post it wherever people find this fine podcast. Um, everywhere podcasts are available. Everywhere um, podcasts so, are, are sold. For, so so for what time. are, what are like factors that go into setting a, a bride price or making bride price more expensive. And uh, one thing I really like about your paper, I should say, is that you acknowledge all like the injustices that are inflicted upon women uh, through this system, yet you use like clinical terms to describe them. So as we not to um, not, not to sort of have our sort of moral impulses uh, be superseded by like the very technical distinctions that, that you make in, in the piece. So you basically call it like a regressive flat tax. Right. Um, yeah, I, my master's degree is in both international relations and international economics. Um, and so I, I have a, a predisposition, I guess, towards framing things economically so that I can understand them. Um, and in talking to people and, and reading about how bride prices typically determine the world over, and it's worth nuancing here because, you know, as you just noted, 75% of the world's population lives in countries where some form of bride price is practiced. There's obviously a lot of local nuance, obviously a lot of local distinctions. But in general, um, bride price is not variable with the income of the man. It's often related to the the status of the woman. And a variety of things can impact uh, that woman's status. Um, You know, I, I believe I read a paper that suggested that um, the effect of girls' education could be variable on bride price. Um, so it comes down to sort of local values, local systems of um, socioeconomic privilege and, and elite networks. Um, but what it comes down to uh, in kind of the, the barest of terms is that regardless of what a young man earns or does not earn, um, bride price is not dependent on male income to a large degree. It's, it's dependent on the valuing of women. Um, and that to me, uh, read in sort of a way, um, similar though, obviously I, I, they're not one-to-one comparisons, 
but read to me a little bit similar um, to the Occupy Wall Street protests, um, because in a number of these places where bride prices practice, polygamy is also practiced. And so uh, men often benefit economically from having multiple wives because of the ability to extract their labor. And you know, I don't want to go into essentially feminist Marxist economic analysis uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but it is the case that you'll get a concentration of bride wealth into the hands of the elite in a number of societies. Um, and so while you know, there's not sort of an outcry amongst young men protesting in a lot of these societies, you know, that uh, we are the 99% uh, of men who might be excluded from marriage, um, and certainly it's not that high of a proportion. There was, in the research that I found, uh, a frustration with the system that they saw, saw as not responding to their socioeconomic marginalization. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so was, you, you basically have a situation in which like older, wealthier men accumulate wives uh, and younger men are unable, therefore, to, to find wives at, at, at a decent price. Exactly. Um, and one other thing that I, I wanted to unpack um, that I don't think is immediately apparent to a lot of people in the West, and it certainly wasn't immediately apparent to me, is the centrality of the role of marriage in uh, sort of the the centrality of the role of marriage in a number of these societies to your achievement of of manhood or womanhood. Um, so it's not. I think in the in the West, in America, certainly in my social circles, um, marriage is important. Um, and people will say things like, "Oh, it's you know the most important day of your life," um, but it's said almost in passing, right? And and there's become. Um, less of an emphasis on marriage uh, and more of an emphasis, again, in my experience, on other attainments. So professional attainments, your first job, buying your first house, graduating from college. Um, marriage in a number of these societies, and particularly in the two where we, uh, in South Sudan and Northeast Nigeria, where we unpacked how uh, obstructed marriage markets contributed to rebellion, um, getting married is kind of the moment when it's a rite of passage. It marks a transition from being a boy into being a man. Um, and in this piece, we're able to draw on some really fascinating um, anthropological literature um, from a few decades ago, but that really unpacked how prior to taking a wife, a man might be dependent on another man to even take his meals, might still live in his parents' compound. Um, and certainly those things have changed and, you know, uh, time erodes all traditions, right? Um, but it, it's still a really uh, prescient theme running through the society. Um, and so to be blocked from marriage isn't just blocked from taking a wife. It's being blocked from a social ritual that validates you as a man and as a member of society. And and there is a, a lot of research uh, that, that's been conducted over the years that demonstrates that just you know, having disaffected young men in particular is a contributing factor to violence and 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 rebellion and and war and conflict, right? Right. Uh, I took a really wonderful course in graduate school um, called Anthropology for Strategists, and we read a, a piece that just stated so simply: uh, adolescence is a social problem, um, and that to me has always been just like a a kind of startling and interesting point to be made how, you know, managing uh, a youth bubble is profoundly difficult. Um, and in Northeast Nigeria, 
you know, you have a situation in which the the production of oil has made Nigeria as a country phenomenally wealthy. Um, but it's also meant the concentration of wealth in very few hands. Um, you know, if anyone's interested in the effects of um, oil uh, production on uh, political economy, you know, check out Ross. Um, and it's he does a wonderful job of unpacking how it how the production of oil affects the political system in general. But in the north, it's led to sort of a collapse of this industrial manufacturing base um, that was at one time a significant employer in the region. And so you have a situation in which the country itself is elevating, you know, a handful of fabulously wealthy people, um, but there's a large mass of, of disaffected youth and, um, and demographics who find themselves unable to find, um, to find work and to then uh, develop the capital, um, the, the economic capital to take a wife and gain the social capital that they need to to be respected uh, members of society. So, so how does this um, make that leap to um, from like a, a social problem to actually contributing to violent conflict as, as your paper in international security demonstrates? Sure. So <clears throat> for those that haven't read the paper um, and you should, uh, and you should, it really uh, is like one of the more interesting um, pieces I've, I've read uh, studies I've, I've read in international security in, in a long time. Oh, thank you so much. And, and I should say the fact that it's like in international security next to studies of, or ne next to articles, you know, about like nuclear deterrence and counterinsurgency is I, I think also really interesting. We can, we can maybe talk about that later, but, um, sure, but, but, but yeah. do, do, do tell sort of what that connection is. So, um, I, I think as anyone listening can tell now, uh, the vast majority of my experience is in Northeastern Nigeria. Um, that's actually what triggered the idea for this piece was interviews that I was conducting um, with folks on the ground in my Duguri and, and other areas in the Northeast. Um, and one of the things that I found striking when I was interviewing um, uh, community members of the, the railway neighborhood where Boko Haram was founded was that Muhammad Yusuf, the founder of Boko Haram, um, and I can give a, yeah, a brief aside on introducing Boko Haram if you think that that's um, mm -hmm. of interest or necessary. Um, I, I think most listeners will, are probably aware of Boko Haram as the sure. insurgent group operating in northeastern Nigeria and like Chad Basin area. I've done a few episodes on on them uh, before, but but you can go on. Sure. So I was I was interviewing people in the the neighborhood where Yusuf had established Ibn Tamiya Mosque. Um, when he broke away from Indimi Mosque after a, a falling out uh, over chronic interpretation of um, uh, the appropriateness of working with the government um, and Western education and, and all of these other things that he's now notorious for rejecting. Um, and in speaking with these members of the community, I, I was trying to unpack, you know, what was Ibn Tamiya originally like? Um, and a number of people kept bringing up how frequently um, Muhammad Yusuf would organize marriages for his members. Um, and so I started asking, well, why would that be necessary? I had no idea that marriage was, you know, so difficult and so central to society there until I started talking to people um, about how bride price um, in, in that time period had risen precipitously, how there were a number of people, particularly the un or underemployed who many assert were drawn to Yusuf um, because of his condemnation of the system and its corruption uh, were unable to get married. And so Yusuf would arrange these kind of low cost or at times free marriages for his members, um, which 
uh, it just fascinated me. And um, my background is in African studies. And so um, when Valerie and I were turning over kind of this idea and thinking about what other case studies we would want to look at, um, I had remembered a, a discussion I went to at the U.S. Institute of Peace um, on South Sudan, where someone had mentioned something similar about um, how uh, many men were joining armed gangs um, to rustle cattle um, in order to be able to pay the bride price, which there is often paid in cattle, and how this had led to, you know, cycles of retributive violence. Um, and so, you know, kind of going off of these uh, anecdotes and heard it through the grapevine, we we're able to um, while I was living in northeastern uh, Nigeria, uh, conducting research up there, um, conduct more interviews um, and then do a secondary literary review, uh, literature review on the, um, the phenomenon in South Sudan and even unpack the ways in which it's contributing to the or, uh, to the ongoing civil war there. Well, the, the, the South Sudan case was really interesting to me, too, because you demonstrated that bride prices increased substantially following South Sudan's independence uh, in 2011 and that the, um, kind of cattle rustling that, uh, that people found it necessary to do in order to raise money to get married and achieve that kind of social status, um, often, um, was done through gangs that had like a, you know, ethnic affiliations that have later, um, become more and more apparent as a country slides into civil war between some of the dominant ethnic groups that, you demonstrated, you know, at like the very local level were antagonizing each other over these cattle raids because young men needed cattle to, to pay off their you know, fathers-in-laws to be. Right. Um, and, you know, when I've originally presented this idea to some of the sort of harder security folks, um, which uh, comprise a significant number of my friends uh, and my professional network, uh, as I used to work at the National Defense University and the Institute of Def uh, for Defense Analyses, um, you know, people kind of raise an eyebrow. Um, but the comparison that I've found that makes it sort of click for people is um, following the Arab Spring. I don't know if you recall, but uh, there was a lot of press coverage about how uh, rising prices of staple foods, including you know bread, um, staple crops, ha had risen. And people were linking this sort of, um, you know, rise in price, which was disproportionately affecting the on or underemployed and, and lower socioeconomic classes, um, had catalyzed this um, insurrection against the government. Um, and obviously, you know, food is necessary for life, but so too are the sort of social rites of passage. Um, quite literally, you know, man cannot live on bread alone. So it, it wouldn't just be you know, economic pressures from staple goods or home prices that would, you know, lead people to be frustrated and, and perhaps reject ruling systems and take action against that system. It would also be increased barriers uh, towards the achievement of, um, of social rites of passage and achievements of, you know, quote unquote, being a man or being a woman. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so back to the, 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 the Boko Haram example, you're suggesting that the sort of doing like the, the kind of mass marriage ceremonies in which bride prices were either paid for or substantially reduced by the authority of that religious figure was uh, a way to attract young recruits to this group? Right, yes. So lowering the barrier to marriage was a way in which Muhammad Yusuf uh, attracted um, uh, support uh, and members of his organization 
um, it was certainly one amongst a number of tools that he used um, in order to uh, um, attract members. So there was also, um, you know, Quranic justification that he um, turned to. So in in the Quran, there is a ceiling set for the bride price. Um, But uh, that ceiling had been regularly disregarded by um, both, you know, Christian and Muslim communities in the area. And so, you know, not only was this, um, uh, you know, a very tangible material way to support his members by reducing that uh, barrier to getting married, but it also came with a sort of social cachet that, you know, you held the higher moral ground because you were, you know, uh, you were chronically learned. You you were interpreting and living by the Quran in a way that this, you know, uh, corrupt, oppressive, inequitable society was not. And and you know it seems that like the flip side of having these um, kind of um, lower priced marriage ceremonies and, and and marriages that that are used to attract uh, young men to to the group is uh, you know the fact that Boko Haram goes out and kidnaps young women um, and and uses them as, as well. What does your research say about like the the um, role of kidnapping young women uh, into Boko Haram and, and how that affects um, you know, the, the, the ability of Boko Haram to, to recruit people based on perhaps like, you know, you know, if you have a kidnapped woman, presumably you don't have to pay such high a price. Right. So I'm so glad that you asked that, um, because I'm actually, um, publishing a book in November called women and the war on Boko Haram. Um, so anyone who wants uh, a real deep dive into, uh, kind of the, the female side of the gender uh, issue of Boko Haram should check it out. It's with uh, Zed, Pub- Zed Books. Um, but there's kind of two, two areas of that that I'd like to unpack. So certainly Boko Haram's abduction of women and girls is a way for them to provide wives um, for their members. And um, uh, one of the young men that I interviewed who had escaped from Boko Haram after he had been conscripted, um, because they do abduct both men and women, uh, told me that Boko Haram rewards its fighters with wives. Uh, And so that, again, plays into kind of uh, the achievement of of social capital, the accumulation of social capital uh, as a member. Um, But one of the other things that I'd like to unpack, and, and I certainly do in my book, is that a number of women joined Boko Haram voluntarily Um, in part because the group also made it easier for them to achieve womanhood um, and kind of a a high social status of femininity because Boko Haram practices purda uh, or wife seclusion. So this is kind of straying from uh, my article with Valerie Hudson, but it's um, something that I find really fascinating because as uh, a young Western feminist, I sort of kick against this idea that wife seclusion would be um, a way for a woman to exercise autonomy. Um, but I was speaking to um, a number of, of girls and women who had joined Boko Haram voluntarily, who had then been rescued by the military, um, but remained loyal to the sect and were being held in a, a special camp called Safe House. Um, so last year, I spoke to a number of them over the course of a few days, got to know them, heard their stories. Um, and a lot of times, you know, they would say, you know, life was easier with Boko Haram. I didn't have to go um, and work on the farm doing manual labor. I was able to stay inside and do domestic chores. I was given access to chronic education um, because despite the fact that, 
Boko Haram is um, yeah, obviously a brutal insurgency that wreaks destruction on a scale that's very difficult to put into context. Uh, the insurgency expends a significant um, proportion of its resources on educating um, or indoctrinating, depending on your vantage point, uh, its members through near daily Quranic preaching um, and tutoring. And even the women who are abducted um, are subjected to this sort of kind of daily chronic preaching. Um, and so uh, without going too too far afield from the discussion at hand, it's really interesting how Boko Haram in its recruitment strategy has capitalized on the frustration felt by marginalized youth, both male and female, um, and, and demonstrated to them or marketed itself on the basis of you can be um, you know, a man and a woman with significant social capital living you know, the, the sort of life that had previously been denied to you by this system. But, but first you got to get married and, and that costs money. Right. Right. Um, and so we will, we will facilitate, you know, finding you a wife, finding you a husband, um, so, and then we'll provide for you. So, so, you know, based on your research, you know, you, you found that, that, um, a correlation between rising bride prices and, and fluctuations in bride price markets um to to be a contributing factor to to violent conflict um but in and you also found that there are certain strategies to mitigate those those pressures that some governments are are implementing can you talk a little bit about what saudi arabia is doing to um to to sort of control basically the the bride price market in a way that uh, puts a cap on on the cost of of getting married sure so uh, yeah, the, the Saudi Arabia example was really interesting um, because, you know, certainly when you unpack, um, you know, quote unquote, the export of terrorism from Saudi Arabia, um, it, there's a lot of grievance in that country related to, to young men. And um, demographically, it has a lot of the same characteristics of a number of the societies that we suggest are at risk of violence and rebellion Um uh, because of inflationary bride price or bride price dynamics, um, youth bulge, um, on and on. Um, but the Saudi Arabian government has sort of recognized um, the lopsidedness or, or the instability within the marriage markets um, and has worked with community leaders to establish sort of voluntary caps on bride price um, and to arrange mass low-cost weddings. Um, within societies at times sort of running up registration lists for women who want to get married and men who want to get married um, and, and the fees are paid and it's it's done in a large group ceremony that significantly reduces that barrier to access that has become um, such a catalyst of violence in Nigeria and South Sudan. What what kind of prices are we talking about in in say Nigeria, in South Sudan, and in Saudi Arabia? Like how how much like these days? Like what's go the, like the going rate for getting married for a bride price? So I actually don't know what it is at present, um, and it is fluctuating. Um, it's it's a dynamic market. Um, I will say what was interesting, I was doing a bit of research um, in northeastern Nigeria uh, for a contract that I'm on. And something that struck me um, is that uh, amongst a lot of the displaced communities, bride price is falling precipitously. 
um, because a lot of families are just desperate to get any capital. Um, I, I'm sure your listeners are aware, but there is a, a devastating humanitarian crisis in Northeast Nigeria. I think it's 14 million people are food insecure at this point and there are famine conditions. Um, millions of people displaced, a really dire situation. Um, but in some, some areas that are in the process of redeveloping and recovering from Boko Haram, community leaders were reporting to me that they, uh, particularly religious leaders, they were instituting a, a cap on the bride price that made it much more feasible uh, for young men to get married, but also was uh, you know, a bride price that wouldn't be necessarily uh, offensive. So, uh, so what, like, what, what are some of examples of like offensive bride prices that, that, that were kind of in the areas where Boko Haram was able to attract so many recruits in, in general, do you have like a sense of how much these are? I mean, it, it's certainly more than what someone earns in a year. Okay. Um, and, uh, particularly, particularly in some of the urban centers in the Northeast, you just have widespread youth unemployment. Um, and so there's only so much that kin networks can provide to help these young men pay their bride prices. There's just, you know, not really legitimate ways often for them to earn this capital. And, um, and, and I think in, in South Sudan, you know, you, you gave the example of how after the independence in, in 2011, you know, the, the bride prices just kind of shot up from like 40 head of cattle to like 100 head of cattle. Right. Um, and, and there was a 2012 report by the Institute for Security Studies um, that found that uh, at that rate at which uh, cattle was selling, which was like $300 a cow, then weddings could cost between $10,000 and $60,000. In South Sudan. Like that's, in that's insane. Sudan. That's insane right. anywhere in the world. I mean, you know, it, in, in South Sudan, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's astounding. Um, and so you know, I mean, I, even in the United States, what's the average marriage cost? It's somewhere in the neighborhood of 27000 right? I mean, you were then having weddings in South Sudan um, that were regularly between half and two times as much uh, as the entire wedding in the United States. It, and it's, it's just, and that amounts to just a transfer of, of wealth from one you know, family to another. Right. But even more so, it's often a transfer of wealth from a young, typically un or underemployed young man to a more established older man who's married, who already had the capital to start his own family. And so it's, it's a regressive kind of flat tax because it, it doesn't um, kind of take into account uh, in a significant manner um, the fluctuations in male earnings Um but it, it's also a tr an intergenerational transfer of wealth that favors those who already have accumulated significant amounts of of social and economic capital. Um. So, so I, I teased this earlier, but I'd love to get your thoughts on the significance of having this research published in International Security, which is, you know, it's a, it's a hard security uh, journal and and you know peer reviewed, obviously. And you know, your article is is the lead article, but its next article is about counterinsurgency and nuclear deterrence. But there, you have this this um, focus on bride price, which is you know kind of typically 
you know, social issues, soft security, human security that has been historically marginalized by the international security field. But I, I see, at least to me, the significance of the fact that your article is in there is this kind of growing acceptance of these, you know, social factors in spurring violence and, and international conflict. I'm not sure if, if you glean that same significance, but it's something that I, I definitely appreciated. I mean, I certainly hope so. Dr. Hudson, my co-author, has written really eloquently and powerfully on how the, the best predictor of whether or not a country will experience inter- or intrastate conflict isn't its economic status, it isn't the predominant religion, it isn't the regime type, uh, it is the status of women within its borders. Um, and obviously, bride price has a, a strong gendered dynamic to it. So if we want to understand the processes by which states uh, become stable or remain stable or become destabilized and, and then wage that conflict, we need to understand gender relations and we need to understand the status of women. Um, I was recently in, in Stuttgart briefing some people at AFRICOM and there was kind of a hunger for this sort of analysis because there has been kind of a gap in the, the hard or traditional security world look when it comes to social factors like this, but nearly everyone that I spoke to there, and maybe they were just being polite, um, were really interested in what our traditional approaches are missing uh, and what about our security apparatus leads us to overlook them. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that you know I found striking when I learned about it um, and that people when I brief are always struck by is that my degree, which is... Uh, where Boko Haram was founded, uh, I could have gone out in shorts without a head covering 20 years ago. Um, it, it's change, uh, the social changes that have occurred, um, though they, they hearken to tradition, though they constitute themselves as sort of a, a return to tradition, are actually quite modern. Uh, but the ways in which we've been gathering intelligence and analyzing the, the situation in this region hasn't really taken into account um, the different kind of standards as they relate to women's dress or as they relate to societal expectations. Um, and so because of that, I, I think in northeastern Nigeria and elsewhere, the Western security establishment is overlooking a lot of the, the sort of gendered early warning indicators well well but but if i can push you back a, a little on on that i mean one of the conclusions of your report is is you know not to you know educate more women's something a, a commodity for which men have to pay but rather that government should do what they can to put caps on bride prices and and work you know civil society should try to implement lowering of, of bride prices as a way to stop conflict sure and i think there's a strong contingent within kind of feminist advocacy um, to end bride price in general as a practice, um, which uh, in this paper we didn't take a stand on, but I've seen some really compelling evidence coming out of Uganda about that. Um, you know, girls' education is certainly a, a worthy aspiration. I'm actually not out of line with um, bride price practice or the existence of bride price in theory. Um, what we're advocating in the end um, with kind of our policy recommendations is being pragmatic, accepting that these are market dynamics that won't disappear overnight and that if countries are interested in stability, 
then they need to recognize that this is a potentially destabilizing market dynamic that it's within their power uh, to intervene in and to prevent uh, violent conflict from resulting from. And, and I, I love the comparison that you make to like early warning systems for like genocide outbreak. You know, you'll, you'll, that, that measuring and then knowing what prices are and how these markets are fluctuating is a really important way to um, help predict the, whether or not a, a place or a society is more prone for, for violent conflict or not. Absolutely. Uh, well, Hillary, this is great. This is so interesting. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you so much. Happy to, to chat about it. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Hillary. That was great. I think as regular listeners will know, I do have a um, predilection for being interested in what is known as like human security. That is like how social factors inspire or cause the outbreak of, of conflict. And this is, like I said, really interesting insight into one aspect of, of that. Um, if you're a premium subscriber and you are listening to this, just want to let you know that I posted a new bonus episode. Uh, so check that out. It, it takes a look at the relationship between the Trump administration and the regime of Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines. Interesting stuff. It's a good conversation, about 15 minutes long. That is, I think, maybe my eighth bonus episode for premium subscribers. So if you're not one, you can check out that and, and the other episodes, as well as receive complimentary access to my Dawn's Digest Global News Clip service. This is an email news digest I send out every single morning that collects the most important and relevant news from uh, around the world as it relates mostly to development and humanitarian issues, but security as well. Uh, so check that out. Just go to uh, globaldispatchespodcast.com and become a premium subscriber on Patreon. I really appreciate your support. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Oh, I should say, um, as you may have noticed, there's been like a slowdown in the frequency with which I am posting episodes. Uh, that slowdown will be reversed uh, in the coming weeks. Basically, it's it's August. No one's around. I've been on. I've had a couple a couple of days off, so. Uh, we're going to pick up our, our pace uh, in the very near future and have some great episodes lined up for uh, September and beyond. So stay tuned. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.